So, uh, One Nation Under God, 1776. I couldn't help but think uh, last night, I was thinking about, you know, uh, Independence Day and so on, and was watching the news. And I don't know if you recall, but last Sunday night in the news, uh, first of all, there was uh, uh, ample coverage of uh, gay pride parade down in New York City. 37,000 marchers and 2 million uh, spectators uh, along the parade route. And uh, that was one thing, but then uh, the next thing that the news brought up was that there was an airplane that I think took off from Australia and was going to Kuala Lumpur, and uh, one of the engines went out, and the whole plane began to shake like crazy, and they had cell phone pictures from the inside of the plane and so forth. And the big news item was that the pilot actually asked the people in the plane to pray twice. That was like big news, you know? And I thought, what a contrast. What have we come to in one nation under God? And what does it really mean uh, to make that pledge and to embrace that uh, proposition uh, as that leading video uh, shared with us this morning? Well, you might recall that last week we started to study uh, the book, uh, the Bible's book of Daniel, which I suggested is the backbone of the Bible's uh, talk about the future, or prophecy as it's called. Uh, God is the only one who knows what's going to happen in the future, and God has chosen to reveal in the Bible uh, what's going to happen in the future in order that we might have confidence that the scriptures really are his word. And um, so when we study prophecy, uh, again, if if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to pick up the CD, uh, because um, beginning with Daniel in 605 B.C., about 600 years uh, before Christmas, uh, what what happened in Daniel's day is the land that God gave to his chosen people began to be occupied by Gentile kingdoms. It's the beginning of a period of time uh, where uh, the Jewish people uh, have been uh, under the domination of Gentile regimes. It's the period of time that the Bible refers to as the times of the Gentiles. Uh, when Jesus was here in Luke chapter 21, he was having a discussion about future events and what's going to happen. And uh, here's what he said in verses 23 and 24. Uh, For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, meaning the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, that land is still being contested today. It's in the news uh, every week. And then verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and they'll be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There's a period of time that began in the life of Daniel all the way until 1948 where the nation of Israel wasn't even recognized as a nation until 1948, the times of the Gentiles. And uh, that's been a long time, and it's kind of remarkable in all of that time uh, that the Jewish people have never lost their identity. Uh, Today, you can actually go to Israel. Some of us have been there. And uh, you can go to a library that's close to the Holocaust Museum. And in that library, with the help of DNA and um, computers, uh, they track the ancestry of both uh, the uh, survivors as well as the victims of the Holocaust. 
And they have proven that today there are people in Israel from all 12 original tribes by DNA. It's amazing. It's unprecedented. And you don't hear a lot about it because you have to acknowledge God in doing something like that. From 600 years before Christmas all the way uh, down until today, the Jewish people have been spread in all different kinds of nations up until 1948 when the nation was at least recognized and, as we say, uh, the land is still being uh, contested. And so Daniel um, is about 14 or 15 years old when the Babylonians come and uh, they take the southern part of uh, the nation of Israel. The northern part had already been given over to Assyria, uh, but the southern part is where Jerusalem is. And um, when you put all the dates together, Daniel probably lived to be about 90 years old. And um, as a teenager, however, um, if you think about it, he was torn away from his family. He was torn away from his biblical education. He was torn away from the temple and his mentors. Most of his friends, three friends went with him. He's torn away from his native language. He's conscripted to serve a foreign uh, government. He's conscripted to serve a foreign king, an enemy king. Um, Not only that, but he has to learn new customs. He's given a new name, which is related to a foreign god. Uh, All of that would be pretty disruptive to any teenager. But Daniel's faith, right, is real. Daniel's faith is real. And so his convictions enable him to rise above his circumstances. Let me just say that again. Because his faith is established by the time he's, let's say, 15, Daniel's convictions or his faith or his belief enables him to rise above the circumstances that God allows to come into his life. And his faith or his convictions revolve around the fact that he knows that God is in control. He knows that God is sovereign, that God is allowing things to happen in Daniel's life for a reason. And so the posture that Daniel maintains, the attitude that Daniel embraces, is that he is God's servant. Servant. No matter what the situation is that he finds himself in, he's already gotten the message that his life is about serving and about serving the purposes of God, who is in control, who is sovereign over all events. And so I just pause there a minute to think about that. Um, Just stop and think about this. How many parents in Fairfield County have it as their objective to raise their kids to be servants of anybody? How many people set out at the beginning and say, you know what I want to do? I want to see my kids grow up with a servant mentality. I want them to be able to uh, give over, give up their own ambitions and their own wants and their own desires and their own needs. A teenager now we're talking about, Daniel, for the benefit of others. And what if it's true that God actually created us not to fulfill our own desires, but for his purposes? What if God actually has an agenda for each of us? And that he's waiting for this attitude that shows up in Daniel of servanthood. Um, you probably remember in Mark 10, 45, we go back to this verse often, uh, where we read that Jesus himself, when he came, right? 
He's talking about himself. Even the Son of Man came not to be served. Even the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. You and I. Jesus came into this world uh, to serve. And so you can trace this servant mentality through the whole book of Daniel, through Daniel's whole life, uh, from the very beginning all the way until he's 90 uh, or so years old. And I think this is huge because, truth be known, so many of us somehow get the exact opposite message. Somehow we get the message that we are at the center of the universe and that everything revolves around us and that God exists to serve us and to see that our desires get fulfilled and to see that our needs are met and that God, his job is to serve us versus the other way around. And somehow when we get in a Daniel-like fix, when we get separated from our family or we get separated from our support system and so on, when we get in a Daniel-like fix and our families get you know, ripped apart because of war or death or divorce or disease or disaster, we start to question God. We start to question whether he really does love us, whether he really is in control. And instead of rising up as Daniel does to be a servant, We get uh, in a place uh, like Daniel, and uh, maybe we don't like our job. Maybe we don't like our living circumstances. Uh, Maybe like Daniel, we don't like our boss, or whatever it is. And then we start to think, you know, God is somehow letting me down. But not Daniel. Daniel's core identity is rooted in the idea that God is, in fact, in control in every circumstance. And that his life is going to be serving that God who allowed that circumstance, no matter how counterintuitive it might be. That God has an agenda and I exist to serve his purpose, not the other way around. That God is overseeing the circumstances of our lives. And I think Daniel grasped the meaning of um, some scriptures, you know, like uh, back in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs Um, talks about some of this in Proverbs chapter 16 and uh, verse 9. You know, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You ever have that experience? You ever figure out the plan and how your life's going to work out, but then somehow you realize, gee, I'm not in control. I can't make this happen. What I thought was going to happen didn't happen. Somebody else must be in control. Uh, Or you go to uh, Proverbs um, chapter 19 and verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. We all have plans, right? We all know what we want to do. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I think Daniel understood the meaning of some of these passages of Scripture and understood that, you know, God has his own plan for his own purposes And that we are his servant and not the other way around. And so, as a servant of God, Daniel resolves. You remember, uh, we saw last week, Daniel made a resolution that he was not going to defile himself by anything that he encountered in the secular environment in which he found himself. He decides, no matter what the circumstances, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to go with God. 
uh, to defile ourselves. It's in verse 8, if you have your Bibles open to um, Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Remember the king wanted him to eat special food and and drink his wine and all the rest of it. And uh, there were uh, biblical prescriptions against that. And so Daniel decided not to defile himself with all of that. And um, to defile something is to make it dirty. It's to contaminate something. It's to lose purity. Uh, To defile something is to corrupt purity. And Daniel determined that uh, he was going to maintain a clear conscience in, in this regard. And I think it's significant when the Apostle Paul uh, writes to Timothy, you know, his young mentee, and he tells Timothy, he's given some, Timothy some instructions and so on, and um, he tells him to maintain his faith, but he also says, and maintain your conscience. It's one thing to have faith and believe all the right things. It's another thing to live by that and to maintain a clear conscience. God has given us a, a conscience. And so in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy, and uh, he says, you know, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, Paul says of himself. I'm the worst sinner going. Uh, But, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Um, Verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Hold on to faith, but also a good conscience. By rejecting this, a clear conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom, and he gives a couple examples and so forth. Faith And a good conscience, which says, I'm living by my faith. Daniel had that going. Uh, His convictions enabled him to rise above his uh, circumstances. Uh, Just another example, the same thing. Peter, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, about the conscience. He says uh, in uh, verse 15, uh, In your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Always be ready to share why you are such an optimistic, hopeful, future-oriented person, Peter's saying. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, and listen, and having a good conscience. And having a good conscience. Um, Be Put yourself in a place where when the opportunity rises to share the good news of the gospel, uh, that you're all in because your conscience, you know, is in line with what you're saying. And so whenever a person understands themselves as a servant of the living God, right, the first thing you want to know is, well, what does God say? What does God value? What's important to God? Uh, What has he revealed? What do I have to accomplish in order to uh, satisfy what God has asked. And you know, if you're a servant of God, that you get a great deal of pleasure, right, out of um, being successful in serving your God. Uh, Psalm 1-1, for example, right? Blessed, happy. The word blessed basically means happy. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but blessed 
is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Blessed, happy is the person who once he decides he's going to be a servant of the living God, who meditates and wants to understand, well, all right, what does God say? Um, Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Happy are people who understand that God made them to be his servant and who give themselves wholeheartedly uh, to his word. There's so many different uh, places we could talk about this. In in, um, Luke chapter 11, when Jesus was here, uh, Jesus was going along teaching and and this woman comes up to him in verse uh, 27, 28. And uh, as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Blessed is Mary, right? But Jesus says, no, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are the people who want to hear, who understand that servant mentality and want to know what's important to God and then with a conscience Hold on to it. Uh, One more passage in um, Revelation. Uh, Way back in the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed or happy are the people who take the book of Revelation and study it and understand it. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show uh, to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, uh, even to all that he saw. Blessed, happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. All through the Bible, God is a giving God, and he's wanting to bless people. And when we have this servant mentality, it's our passion, it's our desire uh, to understand what it is that's important to God and to give ourselves to it wholeheartedly. And so back in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, we pick up in verse 17, and we'll notice uh, Daniel and his three friends, verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Learning and skill in all wisdom. Learning and skill. Just think about this. God is such a giving God And he gives these four young people now in Babylonian captivity learning and skill. Um, I think, you know, when you think about this, some people have lots of learning and little skill. And other people have lots of skill sets, but not much knowledge. Right? It seems like we're kind of given to one or the other. But here, there's this beautiful balance where God says, I'm going to give learning and skill together. And uh, I think when you put both of those together uh, and you realize that they're not attained by effort but as a gift from God, that God rewards these guys' faithfulness by increasing their knowledge and their skill. And that verse says they had wisdom. Wisdom. They were given wisdom. Now, wisdom comes from God. Okay, Wisdom is the ability to take what you know and apply it to your life and live by it. Wisdom is the ability to take what we understand and learn and being able to apply it to our everyday living. You can have an education, you can have a great education, and not have wisdom, and your education is greatly devalued because you don't know what to do with it. 
how many times have you met, you know, somebody who went to college and they, you know, enjoyed a particular subject and so they made it their major and they got done and they're like, I don't know what to do with it now. Uh, these people had uh, both um, learning and skill. And when Jesus came and he started to teach people, you might remember that the uh, uh, elite, the academic elite, you know, marveled at the wisdom that Jesus and his blue-collar fishermen had because their truth came from God. And uh, the truth is, you know, there's hope for all of us in this regard because um, uh, the Bible tells us, James tells us, you know, in James chapter 1, that if anybody lacks wisdom, anybody, who's this for? Anybody, okay? If anybody lacks wisdom, you can ask God who gives generously. God is a giving God. And he wants to give. And you can ask, and God gives generously to all without reproach. Now, I think that's significant because without reproach means that God's not going to put you down because you're asking. He's not going to say, you dummy, you should know this by now. What do you mean asking me for wisdom? I tried to give it to you ten times along the way as you were growing up, and you're finally here asking. You know, and all. Without reproach, God's not going to do any of that kind of stuff. Without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. If you really understand that wisdom comes from God and you desire to increase in wisdom, you can ask for it. Uh, The Hebrew word for wisdom is hokmah. And it really means uh, it's related to skills, and it points to experience and efficiency. Wisdom, experience, and efficiency. And when wisdom is applied to our spiritual lives and our relationship to God, it's a reference uh, to being knowledgeable and experienced. Uh, Biblical wisdom is the ability to do godly living. Remember, I can't remember what the context was, but a number of weeks ago, um, uh, we said that Whenever you have to make a decision, the right question to ask about that decision is, is this wise for me to do? Remember? Wisdom. You don't remember, do you? I can tell by the look on your face. <laughs> it's hard, you know. On a, yeah. The right question to ask, is this the wise thing to do, right? Um, don't ask the question, well, is anything wrong with this? You're thinking about doing something, you say, well... It's not really wrong. Well, it could be not really wrong and still not be wise. True? Haven't you, you know, come up against decisions like that? Don't ask the question, is it legal? Right? It might be legal, but it might not be very wise. The right question to ask is, is this the wise thing to do? Think about it in in your financial world. When you're thinking about making a purchase and you ask the question, you know, is there anything wrong with this? Well, no, there's nothing wrong with it. Is it legal? Yeah, it's legal. But is it wise? And all of a sudden, you you have a whole different set of criteria. Who hasn't made an unwise financial decision? Right? Think about it relationally in your relationships, maybe with a spouse or a a child or a worker and so forth. And, And you have to, you're up against a decision. You have to ask the question, you know, is this wise? Will this build that relationship? Is it wise? Or think about it uh, professionally in your career, in your job. Is this, well, don't ask, you know, well, I think I could get away with this. Ask, is it wise? That's the question you want to ask. 
And spiritually, you want to ask the same question, is this wise? Well, Daniel exhibits the wisdom that God gave him, and you can trace it all through his life, all the way to the end of the book of Daniel. And that wisdom was necessary to go along with his secular Babylonian education. You remember the king ordered for him like a, the equivalent of what we would call a, a college education. And, um, and, and in addition to you know, all of this wisdom and knowledge and so forth, God also gave to Daniel uh, an extra, uh, call it maybe a spiritual gift, um, verse 17 of Daniel chapter 1, uh, Daniel was also given understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, you know, when you go on to read the rest of the Bible, the Bible says that God gives every true believer some kind of spiritual gift. God equips every one of us to be able to serve his purposes in some special way. So in addition to learning and skills, Daniel was given this supernatural ability to understand dreams and visions. And when you think about uh, dreams and visions, you realize that um, uh, God used to speak to people uh, often in dreams and in visions, right? And you might, uh, I traced a couple of these down. Um, there's a, a guy uh, called Abimelech, you might remember, kind of a colorful story. But a guy uh, named Abimelech in uh, Genesis chapter 20, and uh, Abraham uh, and Sarah, you know, end up there where this guy is the king. And, and Sarah was a knockout, right? The Bible explains that she was absolutely gorgeous, and so Abraham and Sarah blow into town, and the king notices Sarah, and so right away Abraham says, oh, that's my sister. Because why? Because Abraham thought, you know what? He's going to knock me off to have her, and I don't want to die. And so he passes her off as his sister. And, um, and this guy wants you know, Abraham's wife, and so uh, God comes to him in a dream and says, hey, pal, <laughs> don't do that. And uh, you can read it for yourself. Genesis chapter 20. Uh, you remember Jacob had a dream, he had the ladder came down out of heaven, you remember, in, in um, Genesis chapter 28. Uh, Laban, about giving his daughters away, had a dream in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 31. Joseph, you might remember Joseph's dream. Remember, Joseph had a dream that all his brothers are going to bow down to him. The mistake he made is he shared it with his brothers, right? <laughs> that was bad. And so, uh, you know, they didn't like that, and you can read that story too, but all through the Old Testament, you know, God would speak to people in dreams. And then when we come to the New Testament, God would still speak to people in dreams. You might remember Joseph. Remember when Mary was pregnant with Jesus? Joseph had a dream not to divorce her. God spoke to him specifically through a dream. Uh, you might remember in Acts chapter 10 that Peter, who is uh, uh, sharing the gospel with Jewish people, has a dream from God to open it up to the Gentiles. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 10. Uh, the Apostle Paul has a dream in Acts chapter 22 where he's invited to come over to Macedonia and uh, to spread the gospel to a different part of the, the world. Uh, God spoke to him in that way. And uh, Pilate's wife, you remember they're about to crucify Jesus and Pilate's wife gets this dream and goes to her husband and says, hey, maybe we ought to think this through again and so on in uh, Matthew chapter 27. Now today, the Bible is the primary uh, revelation the Bible is a living book, and God speaks to us through his word. However, um, in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, um, Peter is preaching, you know, his first sermon here in Acts chapter 2, and he quotes from the Old Testament book of Joel, and here's what he says in verse 17. In the last days, in the last days, 
Okay, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So if you ask the question of this particular passage of scripture, who's being talked about? It's all people, all flesh. What's being talked about? Visions and dreams. And when is this? It's last days. Now, today, um, one of the unique things, at least in my opinion, that's happening that you hear over and over and over again is that when Muslim people become Christians, they almost always relate some kind of appearance of Jesus or dream or vision that they've had that's led them to put their faith in Christ. It's amazing. That has never been. It's one of the hints that I wonder, I say, are we really close to the last times? Because God is pouring out his spirit. These people are having you know, encounters with uh, visions and dreams that obviously come from God because they're leading lots and lots of Muslim people to Christ. And it seems like every time you hear somebody's testimony, um, it, it always has an element of this uh, vision or dream. Uh, now, dreams from God are not limited to any one group of people. Uh, Jews had them. Egyptians had them. Pharaoh had a dream, you know, to let God's people go. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to have a dream in chapter 2, which, uh, Lord willing, we'll get into next week. Uh, the dream, you should read ahead and read this dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel chapter 2 because it's kind of the backbone of all prophecy. And we're living in period, uh, the last period of that time when you put history alongside that. And, and uh, it's pretty exciting to see uh, what God had revealed a long, long time ago. But the point is, um, you know, God speaks to us in whatever ways that he wants. But, of course, there are also counterfeit dreams and counterfeit visions, right, and counterfeit interpreters. Today we call these people psychics or occultists, and they practice things like astrology or various forms of magic, and some claim to be able to get in touch with the dead. And all of these practices are forbidden by God in the Bible. Um, Why? Because God desires us to consult him about whatever it is we want to know. Because why? Because God wants us to have the truth. Because the enemy, Satan, right, is a deceiver and is happy to put all kinds of ideas into people's minds through all kinds of means. And God forbids those things in order that we might come to him. And so Daniel was given by God this special ability to interpret dreams. And Daniel himself, the second part of the book, is given dreams and visions about the future. And uh, we'll, uh, Lord willing, be able to look at that as we progress through the summer. Uh, But notice how giving God is. This theme runs through the whole Bible. Uh, God not only is in control, but God is giving. And really the Christian life is one of responding to God's generosity, to God's giving of truth and giving of love and giving of his son and and so on. And so you remember that the king uh, in Daniel chapter 1 ordered this three-year kind of college-level education for Daniel and his three friends Uh, along with a special diet. And so the next verse in chapter 1, verse 18, says this, At the end of that time, at the end of the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the king spoke with them 
And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore, they stood before the king. Now, <clears throat> these, let's say they're 18 now, 19 or whatever, and they're about to uh, go for their oral exams on the other side of their college education. And they're going to stand in front of the single most powerful person in the entire world at that time. And he's going to ask them all kinds of questions and uh, to try and discern, you know, if they would be fit to serve him and to serve in his kingdom. And uh, he was going to examine them himself. And so these four kids, they rise right to the top. Verse 19, uh, he spoke with them and among all of them, none was found like them. And uh, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Ten times better. There's nothing wrong with learning and being skilled, right? And you can think of other people who uh, were uh, schooled, if you will, in secular Uh, institutions and who showed great wisdom like Moses in Egypt and and so forth. And so uh, the king decides these four guys would be a great asset for uh, his kingdom. They were ten times better than anybody else. And uh, I don't know, from the text it doesn't seem like they did anything extra to prepare for these exams uh, by the king except to just be faithful to God's word. And it was God's blessing on them that enabled them to excel. And so God had a purpose for them, right? God had a purpose in this whole series of events. And uh, his purpose was that they would influence the leaders of Babylon and protect the Jewish people, God's children, the chosen people, who are going to be in captivity for the next 70 years there. And so God was placing these kids in this secular kingdom so that they could rise to positions of influence And they could protect his children. And as the rest of Daniel unfolds, we'll see. Uh, God had a purpose for them. And and that purpose was God's and by his design and on his agenda. And I think it's neat to see here that God will discipline us. He will discipline his people, but he'll never abandon them. And so God knew what was going to happen. And he made preparations in order that the people would be protected. And then the last verse of chapter 21 says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And then he's there after that. We'll find out from the rest of the book. But the first year of uh, King Cyrus was um, 539 B.C. And Daniel uh, became a key leader for four administrations. There are four different kings before Daniel's out of the picture that he serves under. Uh, He became a leader, an influencer, Uh, And uh, I think he lived long enough to see some of the people actually released to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem, um, uh, which was given permission by Cyrus. And so uh, the best definition of leadership, it seems to me, is just influence. Whoever has the most influence has the most leadership. It's really quite simple. It's not position. It's not education. It's just influence. And uh, the more influence we have, the more Uh, leadership uh, we can exert. And we see from Daniel uh, that the root to leadership is servanthood. The root to leadership is servanthood. We read a lot today about leadership. We don't read a lot today about servanthood. 
But Daniel understood that when he was a servant of God, and how do you be a servant of God? You serve God by serving people. And Daniel became this servant of the living God, and through that servanthood, God rose him uh, to a place of leadership. He was what we call today a servant leader, but he was a servant first. And leadership then came from God by his design. And so uh, three Three big, um, I think, uh, three big lessons to learn from the first chapter of Daniel. Number one, God's in control. I don't know if you believe that about your life. Uh, Every once in a while, you know, I'll meet somebody and they'll have some tragedy happen in their life. And they sort of figure uh, God's done with them. God turned his back on them. God doesn't know what's going on. God couldn't possibly allow this to happen and so on and so forth. No, that's never true. Uh, God may allow hardship and trials for his own purposes, and for his own intentions, and he does control the timing of that, but he is in control. He is sovereign. And when you have that in your life, um, it changes your whole ability to deal with whatever life throws at you. Second, I think no matter what, we need to trust God's word. Um, Daniel was somebody who understood God's word, had ingrained it into his mind and his heart, and no matter what temptation, uh, you know, think about a teenager being in Babylon Think of the temptations that he faced. Think of the fears that he faced. And he was able to overcome all of that by simply saying, I'm going to take God at his word and trust him. Uh, And uh, he stayed accountable to God. There was no compromise uh, in Daniel's life in that direction. And then finally, I would say, uh, we are to find a way to respect authority as we adhere to God's word. Uh, Daniel's a great example of somebody who's put under, you know, bad authority. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a character, we'll read about him. Uh, But he found a way to respect that authority and at the same time stick to God's word. And that's a challenge sometimes. It can't maybe always be done. But that's, I think, God's will for us in the midst of the lives that uh, he's allowed us to live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. Where would we be if we didn't... uh, if we weren't able to turn to you and hear from you through your word. And so thank you for Daniel. Thank you for the example he is to us and for the lessons that we learn from this first chapter. And I pray that, uh, Father, we too would have a clear conscience like Daniel and uh, because we would take what we know of your word and that we would live by it and not compromise and uh, be able to be lights in the midst of the darkness that you've called us to live in. And uh, may we do so, Father, with gentleness and love, but may we do so also with boldness and sincerity. And so we thank you for the privilege of knowing you and living for you. In Jesus' name, amen.